podcast name in the podcast game. Ken and Mila are the unacceptable podcast. Hello, everybody. Yeah, we're now on the record. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Unacceptable Podcast. Uh, it's Mila here with Ken, and this week we are joined by Professor Oran McGall. Uh, he teaches philosophy at McGill University and has a PhD in philosophy specializing in philosophy of math. Uh, though I've seen that you are a sort of jack of all trades in philosophy. Whenever uh, I would look at uh, the courses, I would be surprised at like what philosophy you're teaching next and just be like, wow, is there anything that Oran does not do? Um, <laughs> so yeah, so that's, that's going to be the episode for this week. How is everyone doing today? I'm doing good. I'm excited. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not too bad. It's a nice quiet weekend. The, the academic year hasn't started yet, so the madness hasn't quite begun. Yeah, I'm, I'm still, it's not hitting me that I'm going back to school after being off for a year and that it's actually not grad school this time, so it's going to be very very different. You're going back to the real world. Going back to the real world, yeah. Uh, No, I don't need to write another 100-page thesis just yet. Um, So, so yeah, so we were, Ken and I were were reading a bit about your research, uh, and it was entitled what is mathematical about mathematics um so so what exactly is mathematical about mathematics i'm going to dive in with a deep question yeah sure so um it's a well you know titles have to be a little bit um to 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 uh raise some some interest uh i have to say probably the weirdest uh dissertation title i've ever seen in philosophy of math and related topics is uh, gnomes in the fog i kid you not that exists uh, something Gnome about uh, 1920s uh, logician mathematician anyhow so i couldn't compete with gnomes in the fog but i did my best um, <laughs> so uh it goes you know it's obvious that math sort of the university level is abstract okay fine but lots of things are abstract so uh, is there something distinctive about mathematical abstraction? That was the sort of the, the guiding question. Excuse me. So it's a way of avoiding asking about, um, you know, there are really hackneyed questions in philosophy of math that I didn't want to add yet another to, to the list of, you know, what is the nature of mathematical objects? or What is the nature of mathematical knowledge? You do want to say something about that, but to make that the topic's like, oh my God, another one. <laughs> so, you know, it's like writing a philosophy of mind and, you know, writing yet another one about the problem of mind-body causation or something like that. Right? I mean, yeah, it's a great topic, but I mean, do you really think? Anyway, so I start from this other angle, trying to understand what, if anything, makes mathematical abstraction particularly what it is. And the way I approach this was to compare it with something very, very similar and that might to outsiders look the same. What's the difference between logical abstraction and mathematical abstraction? So anybody who's done any kind of intro to logic, uh, very quickly we go from concrete examples like, you know, the standard 
uh, all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal, right? Like the opening lecture standard example from Aristotle. Very quickly, we go to things that look like algebra, right? You get uh, something like uh, A or B, and if A, then C, and a whole bunch of these, and you have to prove something else. It really looks like algebra, and that's just the beginning, right? It gets worse and worse the more you get into advanced <laughs> algebra. So the question is, is it, is it just the same? Are all these abstractions the same? And my, my claim was that, of course, they're, they're very closely related, and they developed side by side, and modern logic was created pretty much to serve mathematics, to create rigorous foundations for mathematics. But there is a difference in that um, logic abstracts away from content wanting to preserve. So one way of thinking of abstraction is like here, like that, that old story about Michelangelo, right? You know, I don't, you know, you're praising my, my work. I don't do anything. The statue was already in the marble. I just took off all the unnecessary bits, right? <laughs> so I, mean, I can't imagine you actually said this, right? But it's a nice story. <laughs> so you can think of abstraction sort of like that. You want to keep something constant and get rid of everything that's not relevant to that. So when you're doing logic, what you want to preserve is the, is the structure of deduction, structure of inference, right? You want to maintain certain patterns of inference and you want to not care about the content. Right? You want it to be that the content can be literally anything at all while preserving the same structure. So you strip away the kind of content that would get in the way. You might think, well, that sounds awfully close to math still. You know, math is also about, you know, it doesn't matter. Two plus two is four, whether it's two apples or two books or two abstract concepts, right? Sounds about the same. So my argument was that uh, abstraction is abstraction, but what math abstracts from, sorry, what math abstracts in order to keep is structure, not inferential, um, sort of inferential rules or inferential norms or inferential, but structure in a more, well, more mathematical sense, right? Um, so to give a really example, simple example of what we mean by structure, uh, think about the algebra of days of the week, right? Uh, or, um, you know, calling it algebra might sound a bit strange, but go with yeah, me for a it's like, what? <laughs> so, you, know, you basically have Sunday, Saturday, and then you go back to Sunday. At least, you know, in, in, in our part of the world, you start the week on Sunday. In, in the U.S., for whatever reason, they think that the week starts on Monday. I don't get it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but in any case, what you have is equivalent, in terms of structure, to the arithmetic of 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, back to 0. Right? And it's the same kind of algebra that you have, say, with the hours of an analog clock, right? Mm. Goes to 12 and then goes back, to, and, and 12 is zero again. So it's called, there's a name for these algebras, that doesn't matter too much to us, but you'll notice that this is a kind of uh, structure where that structure doesn't have to be days of the week or hours of the clock. Uh, you can think, for example, of a 12-sided uh, shape, right? Uh, what's it called? Uh, I forget now in, uh, what's, what you would call a 12-sided uh, you know, polyhedron with all the equal sides. It doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. And you can think uh, of a structure where you rotate it, right? You rotate, let's say you move each vertex sort of one clockwise, right? And the algebra that you get from these operations of rotating or counter-rotating, plus one or minus one, is exactly the same as the hours of the clock. Right? Interesting. So this is a super simple example just to show the idea that 
you're keeping the structure of the operations, you don't care what the operations are on. So there's this wonderful, uh, it's a great, one of the greatest mathematicians of all time, early, late 19th, early 20th century, uh, David Hilbert, or David Hilbert, uh, that, um, so he was a mathematician, but he was very interested in foundations, and he was quite interested in philosophy, although he was not officially a philosopher. And he really gave a vivid demonstration of what he means by that. So he says, you know, you think of geometry, you might think that it's about things like, you know, points and lines and planes and intersection and all these kinds of and angles and all those kinds of things. So this is completely wrong. That's completely the wrong way to think about geometry. Geometry is not about any of those things. What we think of as our normal geometry is just one example of a more abstract structure that can be anything else for that matter. So he, he, he made it very extreme. He says, instead of points, lines, and planes, uh, for all I care, it can be tables, chairs, and beer mugs. As long as they follow the axioms, the basic rules that we lay out at the beginning, if those axioms, if you can find a way, and Matthew would call this a model of the axioms, if you can find a way to make it so that the system of objects, tables, chairs, and beer mugs, does whatever points, lines, and planes would normally be doing, that's just as good. Because all I care about is that the objects be related to each other in a certain way. I really don't care what the objects are. That's what we mean by a structure that doesn't care a structure of what, right? Can be anything at all. So to give an example that people might know from, I don't know, junior high school algebra, and they might not have realized that this is a conceptual breakthrough, um, where you can take simple equations and you can make them into a graph or vice versa, right? So a point in the Cartesian plane is just, you know, you have an x-coordinate and a y-coordinate, and that's a point. A line is a simple, well, linear equation, ax plus b. So 3x plus 1, if you draw a graph, it comes out as a straight line. You want it to go in the opposite direction. Instead of rising, you want it to be falling, minus 3x plus 1, right? Um, so the full equation is, of course, y equals minus 3x plus 1, and then you get a correlation between the, okay. So is it a line or is it an algebraic equation? From a structuralist point of view, it's neither. It's a certain structure that can be, so, so it can be manifested as, can be, strictly speaking, we would say satisfied by whatever. It can appear, if you will, as an algebraic equation, as a graph, or as something completely different. If you can explain to me how that completely different thing still does everything it's supposed to do, right? So that's, so what is mathematical about mathematics is uh, this idea that what you want, you strip away everything to arrive at this kind of structure. Now, of course, as being philosophy, you can explain it in five minutes, and then you have to spill it out for about 100 <laughs> pages. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's classic. I don't talk about the, the metaphysical status of this thing, but anyhow, but, but that's the basic idea. Yeah, that's, that, that's fascinating. What makes math, math, and not some other kind of, you know, talking about justice, it can be abstract or, or concrete, right, depending on what kind of political theory you want to do. So lots of, again, you can abstract away from all kinds of things, and that depends on your purpose. If you're John Rawls, you want to pretend that we can abstract away from all the accidents <laughs> of biography, right, and put yourself behind a veil of ignorance and so on. Right, and, yeah. Right? So, so whether you can do mathematical justice, so to speak, <laughs> right, is like mathematical logic is, you know, that's a question you know more about than I do. <laughs> but my point is, the abstraction really is everywhere. 
Yeah, that's really fascinating because I recently, like on Twitter, I've been seeing people like yelling about whether two plus two equals four. Oh, and I'm, yeah. <laughs> and people, a culture war issue now too. Yeah, people made that into a culture war issue, and I'm thinking oh like, God. well, math is not like just what you learn in elementary school. Like, there's a lot of like higher status debates in it that you know I didn't even know about until I started you know going to university. Like, I used to kind of just see it having the same status as like sciences. Not that there's no debate in sciences either, but I like. I didn't really realize that math is kind of its own standalone thing almost. So I guess it's more similar to philosophy in a lot of respects, mm-hmm. um, but it's not quite the same. It doesn't follow the same kind of like observational logic as science where you're like, you observe something happening in the real world and then draw conclusions from it. Wait, what are the, co- I missed this cause I'm not on Twitter. What are the cultural, uh, what are the culture <laughs> war sides of two plus two? Some, like, statistician from Harvard was saying that, like, there's, like, a plausible mathematic way that 2 plus 2 could equal 5. I think he was talking about, like, axioms or something. And um, then, basically, some people were thought that, like, it was him being, like, a postmodern neo-Marxist or something. Yes. Uh, being like the left wants us to believe two plus two equals five. Yes, even like, that is relative to your culture, which is not. This is George like Orwell all yes. over again. And I was thinking, like, really? Because I mean, so like my dad's an engineer and I've talked to him about math and he is absolutely not a leftist, like and under any circumstances. Um, and he would not mind me saying that. Um, but like he's even been like, Yeah, you know, so in math, like when you get to a really high level of math. Uh, these things do become up for debate. So I was thinking, why is this a culture war thing when, like, my, like, engineer dad, who's, like, a pretty standard, like, right liberal or left conservative is, like, being, you know, (laughs) this is, uh, yeah, this is just a thing in math. I don't know how it became a culture war issue. I mean, I would have thought that of all the topics in the world, or higher math would not become embroiled in the culture wars, but apparently nothing. So the correspondence theory of truth was a hot button issue on Twitter a few months ago. Like, okay. What is going on? I didn't. I didn't know what that. I didn't know that was. That's. Wow. Well, I mean, if you're really bored, you can look it up. But it was mm-hmm. something to do with well, somebody not really understanding what it means and thinking that scientific objectivity means that you must adhere to the correspondence theory of truth. And people actually know something about this. Say, well, you know, the theory of truth is a, theories of truth are a very complicated problem in philosophy of language. And there's all kinds of problems, so problems associated with all of the main options, like everything in philosophy. <laughs> and, you know, to, to reject the correspondence theory of truth, you know, something is true if it's how things are in the world. And saying, well, but what do you mean how things are in the world? you can't just say that, right? Uh, what is the relation between a string of symbols or, a, you know, a, a, I don't know, words that, you know, there are basically disturbances in the air. What is the, you know, how do you go from that to how things are in the world? Right? There's a right. lot of assumptions that have to go into that. And those assumptions, each and every one of them can be questioned and should right. be questioned if you're a philosopher. Anyhow, so the most bizarre things have ended up being, uh, <laughs> hot button issues on Twitter. And so some, sometimes I look at them and I think, 
this can't be real. Well, I wonder if people are just pent up and like, you know, just wanting, like looking for a fight. Um, because but philosophy of language, <laughs> axioms, that's political now too. It's I all going to be political. I political stuff back then when I was doing all <laughs> these kinds of things. You were like, I'm getting away from all this. Yeah, I, gonna... I don't want to, you know, I, I, I've had enough of politics. Let me at least have my thesis topic be just <laughs> something intellectually interesting. Yeah. yeah I wasn't I trying to escape politics. I'm joking. But, you know, you can't. how? Yeah. It turns out that literally anything can be weaponized if people are sufficiently determined. Yeah, yeah, or like mad enough. I think, you know, there's this sort of cultural association of like math as this like, uh, uh, like just this very respectable set truth, logical. It's also like conceived of as a Western thing, which is really funny because I'm like, have you ever met like, have you ever met an Arab dad? Like, anyway. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Algebra comes from Al Jabr wal Kabr for good (laughs) reason. An algorithm comes from Al-Khawarizmi, uh, yeah. the, uh, the great uh, philosopher and mathematician. So, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely not. But, but like, I think there's a conception of it in the culture war as, like, this last bastion of, like, Western man logic or whatever. Um, and, you know, when people start getting into the higher debates about it, because most people are not, like, math PhDs, most people, or philosophy of math PhDs or whatever, like, most people just learn about it in high school. They're like, this is yeah. the cold, hard logic. And that's that. In high school, you're not like questioning about, like even when I took uh, like AP calculus in high school, it wasn't like, we weren't learning about like the deep conceptual debatable stuff. Which is too bad, I think. Yeah, I think but, so too. Uh, yeah. I mean, certainly AP students can, can and probably want to handle the full complexity. Yeah, I think I was really searching for that when I was in high school. Like, I wanted something. I was like, what does it all mean? <laughs> and um, it was I, I, it was a disappointing thing. Even, like, when I took calculus at McGill, it was just very much had the purpose of setting you up to study, like, engineering or something like that. I yeah. actually found that I learned a lot more conceptually about math and logic when I took formal logic. Um, yes, than anything else, uh, which is funny, but, but it's it's true. I think that like you don't really get into the abstractions until you get into a higher level, and so then that creates yeah. these like cultural conceptions of math. Yeah. Um, and I think people kind of don't understand as well that like just because there's something up for debate, it doesn't mean that we've settled on the fact that like this is like a totally relative, meaningless postmodern like you know what I mean. <sighs> So uh, it's all yeah. Well, um, there's a, this is from vague memories from my, uh, my um, not politically savvy 14 year old self who read uh, Ayn Rand. Uh, my shame. We've all been there. Don't worry. So um, have I. Yeah, yeah, I know. I know many of I us. Read and Nietzsche. I read her, Nietzsche and Ron Paul and oh my God. Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins at the same time. Oof, with a toxic cocktail. I yeah, I don't think I would have been. I was very likable at the moment, but. <laughs> so anyhow, she has this whole thing about how I forget which of her uh, deep and well-developed uh, characters uh, insists that uh, objectivism starts with the realization that A equals A. Right. right? The self-identity of everything. And I was just thinking, 
Hmm. Well, I mean, self-identity, even that is a philosophically tricky subject, right? Nobody tell them that, you know, <laughs> actually identity is a you know, self, what does that actually mean? Is there self-identity over time and so on and so forth, right? Mm -hmm. uh, is identity transitive? All kinds of, anyway, I don't want to keep going on into these super technical questions. I'm just saying, well, you know, if I was reading it now, I would say, not that Ayn Rand fans care, but I say, well, actually, <laughs> A equals A is a lot trickier than you think. But you know, like, I'm actually like Ayn Rand fans. Like, yeah, like, oh my like, God. <laughs> no, I usually just mute them instantly if I on see Twitter. them on Twitter. Oh I, I, life is too short to debate these people, but yeah. Aww. Some people have the energy for it. Uh, I, I, I don't. Yeah, that's like me. I'm, I'll get like an Ayn Rand fan with like three, fan with like three Twitter followers being like, Ayn Rand, and it'll be like some progressive libertarian being like, Ayn Rand is the greatest anti-racist uh, writer of all time. And I'll be like, send the clip of her being like, Arabs are savages. And they're like, oh my God. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I think, I don't know, like to be charitable to the other side of things, I think, you know, I kind of get the frustrations that some people might have where they're like, wait, like, is what I thought to be true, like now up for grabs, is everything unstable? And maybe that's the problem with Twitter is like these like academic debates bleed out into like other forums without any context. And then yeah. people feel like under attack or something. Yes. Um, so I don't want to like, I'm not like mocking them, but, but the people that were getting mad, like the person that got mad at this two plus two equals four guy was a physics PhD. So I'm thinking like, shouldn't you, know about this debate well yeah. the problem is that math is sometimes taught even at the higher level uh taught in a very sort of instrumental way mm, yeah right more like here's how you solve differential equations which is of course crucial if you're a physicist and they should definitely be taught that instead of well, not instead of but you know you, you should also explain you know why do we have calculus what kind of issues was it created to solve what kind of conceptual issues are there what kind of assumptions are being made in order to make it work which are from a certain mathematical point of view certainly uh, uh, questionable and you know if you, if you go into uh, quote unquote pure math that's just the name for you know math that is entirely theoretical not meant you know to to solve real world problems um, then you certainly do study these things because that's exactly where things get interesting. What if I fiddle with some of the basic assumptions? You know, what if I have a geometry where space is not continuous, right? Where you can say certain points are quote unquote missing. Can I still have a geometry that works? Turns out you can. Uh, maybe it's interesting, maybe not, but it is interesting the fact that you can do this is interesting, right? Uh, from, meddling, you know, from fiddling about with geometry to say, hey, what happens if, um, we think of parallel lines in a different way from Euclidean geometry. If the, the assumption that parallel lines are these things that go on forever and never meet. What kind of geometry do you get when that is false? And it turns out that the so-called non-Euclidean geometries uh, that people came up with in the 19th century for purely mathematical reasons turned out to be exactly what the general theory of relativity needed to work mm -hmm. in the 20th century. Uh, various abstract... Uh, ideas in, in pure algebra that people were coming up with in the 19th century turned out to be exactly the kind of algebra that was needed to make quantum mechanics work, right? So 
um, you know, just because something is pure doesn't mean it stays pure. But to, to, to really understand these things, you need to understand a little bit. So there's this approach that, you know, science doesn't need, scientists don't need to learn history of science, right? Mm -hmm. Doctors don't need to learn history of medicine. Uh, physicists don't need to understand the conceptual foundations of math. It's just a waste of their time. And then you get people who don't even know how ignorant they are because they think they know their topic very well. I'm sure they're very good at their job, but they don't know their topic very well. Right? Yeah. Uh, and, they reminds and they get mad if you say, you know, someone like me comes up and says, ah, what do you know about physics? I would say, well, a lot less than you in almost everything, but in some ways a lot more than you because I did study the history. No, I can't mm -hmm. actually solve physics problems, but, uh, you know, because of my different interests, right, uh, there's a whole field there that, that you're, I think, missing out on. But this very, I read this morning something really disturbing in a similar way that uh, Australia is now going to no longer uh, subsidize tuition if you're going to take humanities because oh, wow. it does not aim at any kind of career. Right. Uh, I may be wrong on the exact details of this because I just saw this this morning and I haven't had time to really read what Australia is doing, but either they've done it or they're going to do it. And it's the same kind of approach, right? If this ain't going to make you money, why are you even doing it? Well, I also think it's just untrue. I mean, I, I, I'm starting law school uh, in a few weeks and like according to the statistics of people who got in, the majority of them did philosophy or political science or like something in, in those categories. And so I, I don't even think it's true that they don't necessarily go on to do a professional degree per se. Yeah, um, absolutely true. But I think, you know, people are kind of undervaluing uh, the value of like conceptual education. Like they just want the practical application. And I was thinking of when I was uh, tutoring Ken in, in grade nine, and I think he, he put his finger on this before a lot of us did um, because I would teach him a formula and he'd say, but why? Like, why is it that way? And I'd be like, just learn the formula. Good You're going to get it. And, and, and I think he handed in a blank math test at one point because he just couldn't explain like what. You're giving me way too much credit, but thank you. <laughs> no, but I think, you know, you have, you have like when, after Oran explained this, I was like, okay, wow. Like, you know, Ken actually had this insight when we were young and I had this very set brain of like, I need math to do well in school, to go to university. Like I didn't really think about, you know, uh, what's behind it all. Yeah. And I, I mean, think, why do I need to learn to solve this kind of equation? Never mind. I need to get an A. <laughs> <laughs> that was definitely my mentality. I was just like, oh, I need to get alone. to a good school, go to McGill. Uh, and then I ended up like not even doing science at McGill. But, um, but yeah, it's just very, uh, I think that's kind of the orient, the way that we're oriented towards when like doing conceptual work, doing like abstract thinking, in humanities or social sciences can actually help you do these other kinds of thinking and i think Absolutely. people are failing to see the interconnectedness between these fields um which is funny i mean universities used to be like way more interdisciplinary like you'd have people that did both math and philosophy um yes. like it was a norm and like music yeah <laughs> my 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 people now um 
but yeah so I think it's just very like it's very odd but I think it's kind of also a reflection of where we're at in the economy um which is kind of sad but well I mean it's um it, it is a new thing, but it's not as new as perhaps we think. So uh, Max Weber, when he was giving his you know, vocation lectures mm-hmm. way back in, in the, what was it, 1910s, I think, something like that, something like 19, around 1910, 1920. So he gave the, uh, the um, sort of um, uh, science as a vocation where you get the famous disenchantment of nature and uh, politics as a vocation where you get the famous... Uh, uh, what is a state uh, that which has monopoly over the use of force? I'm oversimplifying, right? But that, that's what those two lectures are most famous for. But if you actually read the whole lecture, as I, I, I did at one point because I was curious about the context for these very famous sayings, uh, he starts out, I think this is in the one for the, the scientists. He starts out by, by lamenting how terrible it is that you know, contemporary higher education is all about what you can do with your degree uh, and how they're not getting a, you know, a, a broader education in history in the humanity. This is a century ago. And how, you know, talking about the system of higher education, you're saying things like, you know, it's, it's terrible that, you know, the right connections will get you further than real merit and you know how there's all kinds of state pressures like, like yeah, you could have written this today yeah right? it's so true so in, in some ways it's 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 bad uh and, and it's probably worse now than than I, I don't know what model he had in mind maybe in the 19th century when he was going through higher education late 90s and maybe it was better who knows um but it's just the these pressures to i think there's an important point here these Selective pressures. So schooling for the middle class has to be career-oriented, right? Mm-hmm. The, the idle rich, the idle rich of then were the aristocracy, the idle rich of today, I suppose, are the, you know, the uh, 0.1% trust fund kids. They can go and study whatever they like. It doesn't really matter, right? So they right. can go to Oxford without a scholarship, pay the absurd tuition and living costs, and studying these wonderful five to 10 person small group tutorials, which are, I'm sure I've never been, but I'm sure is an amazing educational experience. But it's really sad that those are the only people likely to get that kind of experience. Whereas, you know, people going to other places, I'm not saying this to trash Oxford, I'm talking about the social system, not not to denigrate the university. Whereas, you know, people going to, to other places and not coming, quote unquote, from money are under intense pressure to do something practical, not because their parents are bad people, but because their parents are realistic about how easy it is to slip out of the middle class and into poverty. Right. And, and, and so, I- you know, I also come from a sort of a lower middle class, you know, working family. And when I started in philosophy and East Asian studies in my undergrad, my parents were horrified not because they thought it's bad to study these things because they were right. genuinely concerned. Like how on earth are you ever going to make a living? Yeah. I think this is very common as well among like immigrant parents, because like in some countries, um, like I think in Canada, you can still do a bit more job wise with like a social science degree than you can in say like developing countries so like my family um 
everyone had to do engineering like because that's just like the most practical medicine law okay yeah Yeah. and and i you know i mean that like what you're saying it's not because they necessarily look down on philosophy i think like at first i took it very personally like oh you're looking down on my field but it's really because you know they come from a place of greater instability than Mm -hmm. than someone like you know here and they just want you to like have something that's secure um but yeah i definitely used to be so neurotic about that because i'd be like oh you don't think that philosophy is valuable and it's like he understands me yeah exactly (laughs) I, i think i think also exasperates that is like a lot of your peers they maybe see are kind of not making a lot of money you know what i mean like yeah. we're all kind of on that's a, a broad generalization but a lot of people are still living at home and they're like the, mm-hmm. they're uncertain about how they're going to make good money in the you know the future so yeah uh, and then it, it ties into like a lazy millennial kind of narrative maybe mm-hmm. but, yeah. well it's not it's even just the that. entire economy mm-hmm. and uh millennials have grown into uh two consecutive uh historical scale global recessions but yes they're so lazy and they eat too many of the other toasts yeah 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 yeah. it's never mind that the the state of the economy is in shambles and that you can't get a job a decent job in your early 20s no matter what you studied (laughs) no it's crazy i have friends who like graduated with a like one of my friends had a master's in engineering and was struggling to find a job in the u.s it's insane and And what's more practical than that right yeah it's like literally the most practical thing and uh yeah i don't know it's um it's not it's not good (laughs) that's for sure uh you know generations complaining about the next one being awful is is literally as old as humanity yeah i know it's very annoying somewhere like a like a cuneiform Babylonian tablet <laughs> where somebody is writing, you know, kids today. Oh my God. There's like <laughs> so Aristotle lazy. being like the kids these days and their gender equality. Like, yes, yes, <laughs> um, yes. They're, they're, they're yeah. crazy ideas about, you know, I don't know. The, about the, the women being in the... from Assyria. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> He's like these cold blooded women and their desire to join the state army um yeah i i think i've been reading this book recently actually about the financial crisis in 2008 by matt taibbi and uh, it's called griftopia it's a really good book um and it's absolutely insane because it's like talks about this like very small group of elite people who essentially crashed the economy and then the government gave them trillions of dollars to like to bail them out, um, yeah. and so, like they're screwing over so many people. Like this was this the recession was felt worldwide, yeah. um, and it's just such a small group of people that can just get away with doing whatever they want, and the government will fund. So the government's like their sugar daddy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if, if I can like just bring it back almost as a meme on this podcast to my my favorite idea of a universal basic income like if, mm-hmm. if if I could like make that argument to people who are like we can't afford it kind of argument you know mm-hmm. it just makes sense yeah no obviously they can afford it because they're oh, yeah, giving yeah. so much money to these crooks um, yeah. it's just it's unreal uh, how, how much money they're giving away uh, 
and they, this is like tax taxpayer money. Right. Um, well, you know, there's no joke. Uh, if you owe the bank a hundred thousand dollars, you don't sleep at night. Yeah. If you owe the bank a hundred million dollars, the bank doesn't sleep at night. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's not even yeah. your problem at that point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's it's. It's it's concerning. This book has definitely made me feel more concerned. And it's kind of like I knew a lot of the stuff, but the way that he gets into it. And I mean, one of the points that he makes is like these people are not like left wing or right wing. Like they just want to preserve their interests and both parties in the U.S. acquiesce to them. And then they they bring in this culture war crap to make it seem like the two parties are fighting each other. But then all of the interests of these, like all these Wall Street interests are just untouched. Um, and people are more, people are learned, people learn to be unconcerned with, that's Taibi's argument is like people learn to be unconcerned with what's going on with these Wall Street guys because it's like too complex to learn. Uh, they kind of kept in the dark about it while all of the parties get them riled up about other things like, you know, whatever whatever well, the flavor of the day is i mean we, we have to be a little bit careful here so uh i i don't well, i'm not accusing matt Taibbi of this but there are people who sort of collapse the differences between the two parties by saying they're both complicit in this kind of plutocracy mm-hmm. and this is sadly true they are both complicit in this kind of plutocracy although to my mind uh one side is still worse than the other although they're both bad there's still a difference of degree, but they're both bad. Uh, nevertheless, th- there are very real differences uh, on, on various things uh, between the parties uh, without getting into the question of, you know, should you vote, should you not vote? Or, you know, uh, I know uh, you and I have somewhat different views on this, and I, I don't want to derail the conversation into that. But I just want to say, you know, uh, noting correctly that, that both political parties in the U.S. and all political parties in Canada, and you know, this is a this is a worldwide uh, pathology of politics that you know, big money is always immune, right? Other things come and go. You know, uh, uh, hawks versus doves on foreign policy, sure. Uh, Keynesian economy versus a kind of a libertarian tax cuts, sure. Those are real differences. But when it comes to touching the super rich, nobody ever does. So this is true. I, I just want to be sure we're not giving the wrong message that, the, that therefore the other differences don't matter. Right. It, it's true that they distract the masses by getting people to focus on the wrong things. But, you know, some of those quote unquote wrong things are actually worth caring about. Mm-hmm. How you treat minorities, uh, whether or not um, LGBTQ people have uh, equal rights under the law. I mean, legal equality is only the beginning of equality, but at least legal equality, right? Those are big deal things, even if it's true and appalling that they never touch this underlying problem of, you know, the, the, the huge wealth inequalities and so on. Yeah, no, I mean, I've come around a little bit on this um, with context to the U.S. election. I watched some speeches of some Democrats that I uh, don't hate as much as the rest. Um, so like Bernie Yang, uh, Tulsi Gabbard, like they're like the kind of three outsiders that um, still nonetheless are, you know, going all in for Biden. Um, 
And I think, yeah, there's a few differences that I think are relevant. One would be, I mean, Biden's terrible in foreign policy, but I don't think he would have tanked the Iran deal as as quickly as Trump did. Exactly. and I like I don't think that I think the people surrounding Biden are less rash, yes. um, even though I think both of them are morally important. But I do think that the the economic similarities between the two parties is is relevant in terms of also these social freedoms, because like whether it's racism or homophobia or whatever, because like statistically speaking, racialized and uh not all racialized people but like black and latino people and lgbt people are statistically poorer uh and 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 i do think that you know having less economic freedom uh is like makes you more vulnerable in your other sort of identities so to speak so i do that's absolutely true Yes. Um, Ken's just like, give him a UBI. I can say. <laughs> oh, I, I, I agree. I don't think it's a panacea that will solve all problems at once, but I think mm-hmm. it would be, let's, th- let's think of, of, I imagine you've, you've discussed this before, but let's just think of it for a moment in the context of, you know, COVID-19 and this pressure to force the lowest paid workers back to work, even though it's completely unsafe. Right. And, uh, careless politicians in various countries accidentally told the truth when they said, but if we keep giving them, you know, uh, subsidies to stay at home, then they won't go to work. Well, why won't they go to work? Not because they're lazy. You don't have to whip the lazy peons to get back to work. No, (laughs) they won't go back to work because it's not safe. Right. Because, you know, most people prefer to go to work, not just because it's a bit more money than the subsidy, but because, you know, the dignity of work is important right. to a lot of people. Uh, yeah. They don't want to be home. Uh, yeah. But there's this conception, right, that, that uh, giving people money is a moral hazard. <laughs> well, why is it a moral hazard? Because their job is so awful right now for health reasons. Other times, maybe for other reasons, their job is so awful that they won't do it except under threat of starvation and homelessness. Right. Maybe yeah. To make the job less awful and more appealing. Right. <laughs> of course not. So UBI could help with that because at least the, the cost of refusing to take work would not be your families on the street now. Right. Yeah. Right? So it would help in the sense, at least in the sense of giving people the power to refuse the worst kinds of employment. Power to mm-hmm. say no. That we had a we had a, a guest on UBI expert Carl Witterquist uh, a few months ago, and he yeah he kind of framed it just as this. He says it's the power to say no, um, and it's not that like people don't want to work. It's it's that people are too willing to work. And yeah. that uh, if you give people a UBI, then they have the freedom to uh, say no if they're if such work would put their lives in danger. So let's yeah. say, but I think a lot of countries are not uh, like we are getting the CERB. Uh, I think the U.S. they just got one twelve hundred dollar check. Yeah, it's absurd because and U.S. And they politicians out. were foolish enough to say this because if we give them more, they will refuse to go back to work. Mm-hmm. but then they build out all these businesses <laughs> yeah i don't want to die yeah. weird <laughs> yeah i read a, 
I read a number that the bailout was like sixteen hundred per taxpayer, and the payment was like twelve hundred. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember if that's exactly right, but it's indicative. You know, it's illustrative of something ridiculous. Yeah. Well, I'm just like, fellas, is it lazy to not want to die? Like, it's like, yeah, I don't know. And now, and now they're saying the same thing about teachers because teachers in the U.S. they're reopening schools, even in places that are raging with COVID, where it's mm-hmm. blatantly unsafe to do it. And so teachers unions in those states where they're allowed to exist are saying, uh, excuse me, what is this, right? You can't force us back to risk our lives. Oh, bad teachers, dereliction of duty. If I'm a soldier and I can go blah, 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 then they can go. Or, (laughs) hear me out, how about we not force people to endanger their life for a pitiful amount of money Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and then try to shame them when they refuse to do that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think it's very, like, it's a very natural instinct to not want to put yourself in danger. It's kind of absurd to me that that's being looked down upon. And I think part of it is like the culture kind of fetishizes like this absurd kind of self martyrdom or self sacrifice. Like, everyone's like, I, you know, it's like cool to say, like, I work 20 hours a day or like what can, Ken said, like, oh, I practiced guitar for, like, oh, 12 hours. Classic, yeah, you know you didn't. <laughs> don't stop until my fingers are bleeding. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, dude, chill. <laughs> Enjoy your life a little bit. Um, but, but yes, I think that's definitely, definitely a thing. And I, I do feel bad for, you know, regular Americans who... Uh, I mean, I feel very lucky to be able to even have the CERB. I, my contract job ended, didn't get renewed for, you know. Yeah. And uh, it's a definitely has been very helpful. So I think it's, yeah. it's good. Um, what, do we, what if we always had that? <laughs> <laughs> well, so there's a yeah. petition uh, going to Parliament by MP Leia Gazan. Um, and I'm going to try and actually reach out to her and get her on the pod because I think it'll, it could be a good discussion. But there is a petition to make the CERB permanent. Yeah. Um, which I think, you know, could be could be a step in the, in the right direction. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, I mean, for Americans, like I mean, this has also entered their public discourse through uh, Andrew Yang. Uh, and uh, I think, you know, it's possible for them. But yeah, I don't know. We'll see. Got to stop bailing out so many uh, banks first. Yeah. Well, you know, it's amazing what there is money for and what there isn't money for. And this is exactly yeah. the kind of thing for which, you know, uh, uh, this is exactly the reason why politicians, if they're being honest, would say that they don't want people to take a humanistic education mm-hmm. that encourages people to look at the big picture. Right. right. Uh, you know, the post office is losing money. Is the Pentagon also losing money? right? It's like it's a public service. Uh, There's no money to do X, but there's always money for more bombings. You know, those bombs are kind of expensive. Obviously, the more crucial thing is the human lives on the other end of the bomb. But I'm just saying, even if you're selfish and you only think about money, right? Even from that very, very narrow point of view, it doesn't make any sense. Well, it's what, like Tupac said, they got money for war, but they can't feed the poor. That's uh, Yeah, exactly. Of course there's the money. This is yeah. it's like people say, to take this on a more personal level, people tend to say things like, oh, I don't have time to do X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. And to which I have to say, no, no, you do have time because we all have, the one and only thing we all have equally is time. 
We all have exactly the same 24 hours a day, give or take a few minutes with uh, adjustments to the clock. Uh, so you may say, I don't have the luxury of doing that. That's fair. Mm -hmm. But don't say I don't have time. We all have time. I will have exactly the same. I, I am choosing to spend my time doing something else. Totally fine. I'm not here to judge anyone. But, you know, this I don't have time expression is, is it's okay as a, as a shorthand, but it's misleading. <laughs> we all have time. So this similarly is, to how we all have time, poor countries may literally not have money to do certain things. Rich countries always have money to do whatever they decide to do effectively. Mm -hmm. And it's just a matter of deciding what they want to invest in. Now, I wish politics were more honest and say, no, we would rather invest in our defense budget than our health budget, right? right. We would rather give a tax cut to uh, investment, uh, you know, to people with huge money, uh, with huge income from investments instead of, say, raising the salaries of, of teachers in public schools. Right. Let's just yeah. say, okay, yeah, we think that as a society, this is a better use of our pooled resources. All right. I mean, I think it's awful, but at least you're honest. Yeah. <laughs> so but some imagine the concept yeah. of politicians being honest. I don't no, think I know, that's... I know, it's utopian. But I'm just saying, <laughs> you know, this is the kind of thing that, you know, I, I try very hard when I'm teaching. I, I also teach at uh, Dawson, you know, general mm -hmm. education humanities. And I... I you know, I have very strong political convictions. I try very hard to keep them out of the classroom because I don't want students to feel like I'm imposing my politics on them. But yeah. what I insist on, I politicize it indirectly by always drawing attention to these systematic issues. And then I t always tell my students, look, I have my ideas about what we should do about this, but I don't want, I'm not trying to tell you that my ideas are right. I, what All I want is for you to realize what kind of, social system we're living in and then you can decide what you want to do about that mm -hmm. you can decide if you're okay with it or not but it's yeah. my job as your teacher to make you see it and then you do whatever you want right yeah so that's the kind of thing i mean by honesty look maybe some students will look at that and say oh yeah that's great you know what we need is a more libertarian society all right not my cup of tea but okay yeah but at least you're you're aware of making a choice right yeah i think like like i think this is the best way to do it when i when i ta'd i was tried really hard to not put my views out because which was like you know i'm very loud on twitter so i was like oh god <laughs> i hope my students don't find my twitter um but i have my own name if they find me they find me it's not in the classroom right i'm not yeah exactly well so i was saying like I literally do not care if you have the exact opposite view as me. I'm actually quite interested to hear it. Um, and, and so I said, like at the beginning, you know, I want, I want you guys to fight about this. Like I want, I want some discourse. So like, don't try to uh, agree with me and no one did. And I think it was wonderful. I had such a yeah. great class. I taught on a democratic theory and uh, there was such lively debates, very respectful, very different views going on in the class. Um, and I got really interesting papers to grade too. Wonderful. And yeah. so I, I think, you know, that's, that's the way to do it. I don't like, um, I don't know, like there's kind of a stereotype of the professor as someone being like, uh, these are my views and if you don't believe them, you suck. And I'm sure they do exist. I, yeah. I have, I've only had one prof like that. Uh, and it was when I took political economy 
and huh. he was like just venting about how Obama was like ruining his country. <laughs> oh yes, <laughs> those damn socialists. He was like a really big fan of Chris Christie. It was absurd though. Like he was like an anomaly. Um, most of the profs I've had, I've like known their views, but they've been very careful to be uh neutral and i i had this one professor who ended up being my supervisor in grad school who's like everyone knows he's a marxist because he literally has a book about it but (laughs) um but uh so some people would try to like impress him when we were reading hayek and like critics be like yeah like he's a capitalist blah blah and then my prof would surprise them by defending hayek yeah. And just, just to like play with them a little bit. Yeah, well, knocking um, down a straw man is not valuable. Yeah, exactly. You want to knock down Hayek? Make it the strongest version of Hayek, not the optic yeah. version. You're like, yeah, I'm not a fan of hanging people from helicopters when they don't agree with me. You know, that was my, <laughs> that was my critique of Hayek. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, these people have a lot to answer for, but, mm-hmm. but the, the, their ideas as such, you know, you, you want to want to defeat libertarian politics as a political project fine you're not gonna get there by defeating some kind of mockery of those views right right, right. and i think you know um twitter is the worst for this because like it's all about snappy quick straw mans you know and i mean i've been saying this to people like misrepresenting because for instance like the information that we get on some countries and the reporting standards for some countries are a lot lower than the reporting standards for here, for instance. Yeah. So the information that people get about, uh, say, like some Latin American countries, about China, yeah. about uh, the Middle East, comes from oh very God. dubious sources. Like the leading expert on China right now is a guy named Adrian Zenz, who's a evangelical fanatic uh, who thinks like like it's the God sent him on a mission to destroy China. And this is the guy who's like a huge wow, source nice. on on what's happening. And because I've said there's like, a shortage of universities with China experts studying the history and the contemporary yeah. politics of China. Yeah, but it's like he represents like a powerful interest, right? And yeah, and and I was saying like because some people who I respect were sharing some of his research, uh, and I said, look, like if you care about what's happening to a certain group of people in China, to like say Muslims in China. I think yeah. it's in your best interest to actually share credible sources, even if like Zen's makes it look the most severe. Uh, it doesn't yeah. actually help the cause to share like bad info. You know, like it's not yeah, yeah. it's yeah. not helping anybody. You're not going to convince anyone, no. And I think people do that with a lot of issues. You know, uh, people frame things, especially like when it has to do with Trump. The reporting on Trump is very silly. I think there's a sort of derangement syndrome um, where, and like the Russiagate stuff for me too, I thought was like very silly in the way that they reported it because it made people not take it seriously anymore because of how hysterical some of the reporting was. Yeah, And, And so I do think it is important to like not be silly about things. And I think, you know, universities are valuable in teaching people not to do that. Um, but I do think that, I don't know, I've been making this argument for a while that it's not necessarily in the classrooms where like things get ridiculous, but in like (laughs) student organizations, 
Like you I'm know, sure you uh, know this, but like it's student, student organization politics are are it's like um scary. Like a caricature version of uh of you know national politics. Yeah. But it's, it's like a, literally it's like what it's what like Fox News thinks the left is. Like that's yes. what I like it's you know student student government is I think the worst kind of posturing and uh just all kinds of ridiculousness yes. strongly um, held convictions in inverse proportion to how much they know about the topic <laughs> yeah so i'm like stop focusing on the professors like look at the student government those are whack yeah um but yeah i mean so sort of relatedly you've been saying how you've been working on expanding the canon of philosophy yes. did you want this to is say what i've been doing that? because um i haven't done much research since i got off the academic job market a few years ago mm -hmm. and i've been teaching at mcgill as what you would call an adjunct mm -hmm. um so uh the the plus side of that is that um there's since you're released from the pressure of, you know, publishing enough to meet your uh, tenure committee's requirements, um, you can focus on teaching and you can read much more broadly. And uh, I started out way, way back in the days in philosophy. I didn't actually start out in philosophy as such. I started out in, in East Asian studies and also took lots of philosophy courses. I had this uh, viewpoint, which in modern academia is considered uh, Quaint, to say the least, that you know, philosophy is an earnest about its name. That is to say, the love of and the search for wisdom, right? And that and that, that means that not you know find your personal philosophy and kind of self-help, new age, <laughs> stuff, but you know not everything in philosophy has got to concern how we live or how we should live. But um, it, you know, if you're taking philosophy seriously. Uh, as I saw it, um, it should do something. It should, it should touch you in some way. Uh, not necessarily by agreeing with the people you're reading, but it should make a difference to you to have studied this. Otherwise, it's, it, it's, it's, a, you know, it's a nice intellectual pursuit, but you know, so is playing chess, right? And, and I love chess, and there are chess professionals, but right? uh, philosophy is not meant to be chess. And again, no disrespect whatsoever to chess. It's just a different <laughs> kind of thing, right? Um, and so I, I started out with these very strange ideas, and they were mocked so thoroughly in just about every class I took that uh, I was disabused of these notions, and I bought into this conception of, you know, philosophy as this academic discipline, and I drifted away from East Asian studies because it was not sufficiently academically rigorous for me at the time. And so that's how I drifted into, you know, analytic philosophy of language, what I did for my MA, and then I got to McGill and I discovered philosophy of math, which was really fascinating, and I don't regret it for a moment. It, it was wonderful to devote a few years of my life to really understanding that. Uh, I, um, but when I was sort of released to focus on my learning, I was thinking, on uh, my teaching, excuse me, well, learning as well, uh, I thought, okay, well, what, you know, what, what do I want to do to, to make my teaching better, not just in terms of, you know, how good I am at conveying material to students, but what do I even want to teach? Um, and one of the things that, that 
I wanted to emphasize since I was mainly being given, so I was given intro to various things because I function in the department as a kind of a substitute teacher, right? Uh, somebody's on sabbatical, somebody has to cover their required course. So I'm, I'm very happy to do it. That's how I learn uh, a lot more about various topics. That's, you know, I started out by saying I teach all kinds of things. Yeah, like Those really, it's so expensive. Very well. Some of these things I knew very little, but, you know, suppose you tell me in May, listen, in September, we need you to teach philosophy of art. I didn't know too much about it. I, I took some courses on it, obviously, but, you know, so I spent the summer becoming very good at philosophy of art, which is great. Right now, I now know uh, I had to do that for the, somebody resigned from the department. So they had to fill the Plato course on short notice. I said, all right, I have a free summer. I'm going to become a Plato expert. Right? And that was fantastic. It opened my horizons. I still read books about Plato to this day out of interest because it was so in anyway, So I was thinking, what do I, you know, what, what, what do I want to emphasize when I'm teaching? And I, I, return to my roots, so to speak, that the kind of philosophers I ended up teaching, you know, not when I'm teaching a specialty intro course, right? If you teach philosophy of art, teach philosophy of art, but when you're teaching intro to philosophy, mm -hmm. what is intro to philosophy? Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. When I took it, it was like epistemology. Yeah. So yeah. the default would be, you know, if you want the, the most cliche type of intro to philosophy imaginable, you would do something like you would search from a bit of Plato, maybe some Aristotle, and then you would pretend that nothing happened until Descartes. So you would skip ahead to Descartes. You do a bit of empiricism, a bit of rationalism, maybe say a few words about Kant and maybe sprinkle some existentialism at the end <laughs> for your 20th century. Right? And it's not a bad course. If you do it competently, this can be a very nice course. But to my mind, that's not a good intro to philosophy uh, for, for a number of reasons. So th that was one consideration that this is very distorted. The other was, um, there was a speaker, I regret now that I don't remember who it was, but there's a, a feminist philosopher who came to McGill to give a colloquium talk. Uh, this would be about six or seven years ago. And to talk about why, why do we find uh, uh, such, a, such a, a gender disparity in philosophy between right. the, 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 you know, underrepresentations of, of, of all kinds of minority groups, right? But, but a glaring one for women where you look at the undergrad level, uh, you look at undergraduates in, you know, across the humanities and social sciences, I think it's a slightly more than 50% women, right? And then you look at things, it gets worse, of course, like every field, it gets worse when you go to grad school, when you go to uh, mm. non-tenured professor, when you go to tenured professors, it gets worse and worse, the imbalance, of course. But if I remember correctly, nothing is remotely as bad as philosophy. It's our female brains. Yes. And so, uh, and, and philosophy is actually worse, if I remember correctly, uh, uh, worse than, than stereotypically male-dominated fields such as, I don't know if philosophy is worse than engineering, but it was certainly worse than a number of other fields that are known for their very bad gender disparities, right? It's like, why is philosophy so bad on this? And um, so she presented some research that people were doing and a lot more research has been done since. And one thing that stuck to me because it was the one thing I could do something about. So that's the one thing I sort of took away from that, 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 that uh, a big part of sort of the, the, the narrowing of the pipeline happens between first year intro and advanced courses. Mm. Right. So yes, there are a lot of other points where, where it narrows and gets worse. Uh, but from upper level undergraduate to grad school, actually the drop off is not too big. Right? Mainly from intro to anything else, huge drop off. 
And there's some empirical evidence to show that a part of the problem is that the mental image they get of the philosopher is of this old man with a beard, right? White old man with a beard, basically, right? Now, not all of them have beards, but you get the idea. <laughs> and, uh, you might think, and philosophers love to think like this, oh, the person doesn't matter. It's all about the ideas. I have some objections to this idea that you can teach people's ideas in some kind of disconnected brain floating outside of history. Right. I don't think you should teach philosophers like this, but let's pretend for a moment that you can. Uh, that's not how students experience it. They look at a field and they ask themselves, is this the kind of field where you would find people like me? Um, and uh, it, it helps if they see that the teaching staff is more balanced. But um, again, I'm sure this is controversial, but there are strong grounds to argue that what they see in the syllabus as representatives of the field matters a great deal, certainly in a field like philosophy, where the intro is very uh, historical. Again, in, in something like engineering, you have engineering textbooks. You don't have a syllabus of people, so to speak. Right. right? But in philosophy, you do study, quote unquote, people, ultimately, right? at least usually, you, know, you study Plato, Descartes, Kant. Um, and so I thought to myself, as somebody who's likely to teach a lot of interactive philosophy, I thought, oh, well, this is something I can do something about. Um, and so when I, I set out to sort of redesign my interactive philosophy, well, not mine, but the, so to, to plan a new interactive philosophy course, I thought, okay, what I want to, uh, what I want to do, apart from all the usual things of, you know, wanting to be a competent teacher, what I want to do is to, Pick readings that are, yes, central and influential and all that, but also uh, show students that philosophy is, one, not only a Western thing that began in Greece and continues in Europe, and two, that if we look at the contemporary scene, there are wonderful and fascinating women philosophers. So if you can, if you can only highlight two or three people that do say 20th century or contemporary, why, why not? Okay, you look at ancient China, right? Mm -hmm. You just don't have recorded women philosophers to teach. Okay, but you look at 20th century philosophy, why not? Yes, you can teach, uh, I don't know, um, Sartre, but you can also teach de Beauvoir, right? right. Um, you wanna do some contemporary analytic, you can pick, I don't know, uh, pick some, uh, sort of name that, that philosophy people would know, but other people wouldn't know as a representative of contemporary analytic. Yes, but you can also pick from a wide range of fantastic women analytic philosophers who work on many of the same topics, whether it's metaphysics or politics or uh, theory of knowledge. And crucially, and again, there's absolutely uh, uh, no problem with teaching feminist philosophy using women writers, but crucially, I think it's important to show that women philosophers are not all doing feminist philosophy. Right. Yeah. Right. It's not, yes, we do philosophy and we do feminist philosophy. There we'll find the women. <laughs> right. That's another kind of trap. And again, it's great to teach some feminist philosophy, although in, in my intro, I didn't end up doing that because you got to pick and choose. So the, the, the global diversity uh, I, I addressed by saying, I want to show you how philosophy starts, not once, but three times. I'll show you how it starts in Greece. I'll show you how it starts in ancient India. And I'll show you how it starts in, in uh, um, classical period uh, China. Right? 
And, and yes, it's important to note the differences, but in the intro, I want to emphasize the underlying similarity. We are all human beings, and when cultures reach a certain level of uh, material comfort and urbanization, you start to get leisure phenomena like philosophy emerge. And then you find people worrying not about exactly the same things, but fundamentally the same things. Right? <laughs> uh, who are we? How should we live? Right? Uh, now, metaphysics and epistemology are very big concerns in Greek and Indian philosophy, but not so much in Chinese philosophy, at least initially. It's a sort of a peripheral concern. Chinese philosophy is much more interested in social and political questions and less in, in you do find metaphysics and epistemology, but it's less central. So, in order to make this coherent and not some kind of hodgepodge of random people, some kind of diversity checklist, China, check, India, check. You don't want <laughs> like to do a that. Like admissions committee kind of thing. Yeah, oh my God, right? So, so Human you resource organize around some kind of theme, yeah. such that you're telling a story and you show how these people fit naturally into the story, not because mm. you have some kind of diversity requirement, but because, you know, they deserve their place there. This is not a, you know, this is not some kind of affirmative action favor. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so the topic that I chose, you could choose other ones. The topic that I chose is, you know, what's more classical Greek topic than the good life? Right. How should we live? And then when you talk about that, so yes, you do your, you know, in my case, I did, you know, some Plato and then some Stoicism and Epicureanism, um, just to show kind of a range. And then we moved on to talk about, you know, Confucianism and Taoism and, and some of the smaller schools and, and as sort of competing conceptions of the good life and how you could live it with Confucianism representing one version of sort of ethical self-cultivation along very conservative social lines, right? Mm -hmm. Study the writings of our elders, respect your parents, obey the emperor, right? And through that, you will achieve ethical perfection and so on but also the Taoists who were kind of, you know, anarchists avant la lettre, right? And had all these ideas about how, you know, civilization corrupts us and, you know, social conventions uh, pervert our innate nature and ruin our lives. And so I'm oversimplifying, right? But Damn, so like, Rousseau plagiarized uh, from the Taoists. Right? <laughs> Rousseau plagiarized from the Taoists, yeah, yeah. it like, looks he, like. He, he might have been influenced by some of these people by, by reports, but, you know, you do get, Europe doesn't need the Taoists for that. You, know, you have your romantics, you have your right. counter-cultural yeah. philosophers. But that's exactly my point. Of course you find these things everywhere because we're people. And people fundamentally worry about the problem of how to live and how to live together. And... You know, it's not, again, it's not the same. It's worth noting the differences in how each cultural historical context is different, mm -hmm. but also to emphasize the shared humanity and how, you know, there is something, and this is the last thing I want to say about this, that it's, to me, it's crucial when you're teaching these things, whether it's Greece or China or anything else historical, medieval Islamic philosophers, I didn't end up including that just because, you know, again, you have 13 weeks, you got to pick and choose. Yeah. Uh, whatever you're studying, if this is the kind of theme and you want to convince students who may never take philosophy again, but that's okay. You want to convince them that these are not museum pieces, right? That it's interesting to learn about these as the history of humanity, but also, again, the search for wisdom, that there's some wisdom to be gained from thinking about these people and learning how they thought. There are some lessons that, that if you want, right, you can, you can learn from that and, and different ways of thinking that 
can expand our horizons, even though in some ways we may find some of their ways of things absolutely abhorrent, right? Confucianism is appalling on women, right? Extremely patriarchal. Uh, you know, Aristotle justifies slavery. That's horrifying, right? Yeah. Um, and you need to to be open about that as well. You don't want to glorify them as some kind of golden age and nowadays everything is, you know, Western is bad and modern is bad. No, <laughs> there's good and bad in every period, but right. there is still something to be learned. So do appreciate the history. And if you want, you can take something from this, right? So again, I'm sure this can be done better than I've been doing it. And every year I try to, you know, smooth out a few edges and improve things and maybe pick a slightly different reading if something didn't work so well. But that's the fundamental approach to, you know, I'm going to be doing intro and I have all this time. Well, I don't have the time. I'm choosing to take the time to, to make it the best intro that I'm able to teach. Uh, what's important? So to me, these things are important. Uh, maybe to someone else, it's more important to you know, focus on say, oh no, it's incoherent if you don't only tell like the story of Western philosophy and how it got from point A to point B. That's a perfectly respectable project to take as well, right? It's just, that's a different approach. Right. There was this, um, I'm, I'm sure you remember, there was this very provocative uh, New York Times op-ed a few years back by Jay Garfield and uh, Brian Van Norden. So Garfield is specialized in Buddhist philosophy and Van Norden in Chinese philosophy. And they wrote this op-ed saying, if philosophy departments in the West are only ever gonna teach Western philosophy, they should have the decency to rename themselves departments of Western philosophy. Right, yeah, because it's not like just that. If you're gonna pretend that that's all the philosophy there is, that's wrong. Right. If you, if you, if you don't wanna teach other kinds of philosophy, own it. <laughs> Right. right. And it, it creates this false conception again that, you know, this like logical thinking and uh, yes. analytic thought is like this exclusively Western thing if you only yes. learn about it. And also it's like, are the Greeks Western? Like, I don't know, like they're not really like Greece and the Middle East are kind of in the yeah. close quarters. Why is one? Yeah. No, no, nobody tell them how brown the Greeks were. <laughs> like sh i saw this this really funny meme and it was like of someone from today uh seeing like a roman like an olive skinned roman and the guy the white person from today was like oh my god based groit pilled roman here to save the white race and then the roman guy says what the fuck is a white race because they just yeah. didn't have that at the time yeah um but they I, 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 that is really interesting. And like, admittedly, my background in philosophy, I'm not, super, I've read a bit of the Islamic philosophers, but I, I, my education is mostly in Western philosophy. I really have not read my, the only, I've read one book of Chinese philosophy and it was uh, Mao's On Practice and Contradiction. <laughs> How appropriate. Um, well, but no, it's not just you, right? It's everyone. Yeah. Because we just don't teach this stuff. Right, and and don't I think tell students it exists. I I happen to come from East Asian studies, so I started right. from that stuff. But yeah, how many people with a philosophy PhD have ever been seriously exposed to that at all? Well, I think uh, it's never mind it, expertise. They don't even yeah. know it. It's there. Well, it's important to construe it. I think how you are construing it, because I think a lot of people will view it as affirmative action for philosophy, unless you specify otherwise. That it's like no, this is actually going to be expanding our knowledge 
the more kind of people that you learn from. If you learn from people from the exact same uh, upbringing, it's not going to be a very, it's not necessarily going to be that interesting. Um, And I mean, I did like, I'm trying to think like, I took one seminar where I learned about feminist philosophers before the 20th century. um, Because we did like, it was basically women responding to Aristotle. (laughs) <laughs> and it was yes, quite amusing. Was. Yeah, it's a nice Yeah, class. it was actually. Okay, guys, sorry, I gotta go. I gotta go. Um, it, I had a lot of fun. Thanks for coming on, Warren. You guys can keep going. I just got okay, to do some I guess now. we'll. Oh, All right. no worries, yeah. <laughs> I'll see you guys. Uh, that was a great episode. Nice to meet you, Warren. Likewise. Okay, bye, guys. Okay, bye. I guess this is the first episode we will be continuing without Kenneth. Um, um But I do think. Uh, that it's definitely um that, that like it's a good point because I, it's, it's it's also just fun like i so what i was saying is like we read these philosophers like marinella who i'd never heard of in my life right like yeah. we read these like italian women responding to aristotle yeah. um and it's like it's it's amusing it's entertaining it's not it's you know it's, it makes the sort of uh it makes the topic more interesting, I think, as well. Yeah. So I think there's definitely merit in expanding that canon, and I think it could actually have a positive cultural benefit as well, like you were saying, because it, and like we were talking about. Um, I remember. I I hope my listeners don't judge me, but I read a little <laughs> bit of of Ben Shapiro's new book. Oh no! Um, I don't know why I did that. Heresy. I definitely hate myself. Um, and but like his argument kind of comes from this kind of ignorance because he's saying essentially like everything comes from Athens and Jerusalem, and it's kind of arguing for the superiority of Western civilization. First of all, like since like is Jerusalem? It's like Schrodinger's Westerner. Like it's like sometimes it's Western when it's convenient, and yeah. sometimes it's I not. Mean, as 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 somebody who's who's you know ethnically Jewish, yeah, uh, I'm very happy that we're quote unquote white and Western now. This is a new <laughs> yeah. thing for us. It's a new phenomenon. No, yeah. I know it's very. <laughs> it's that's how it is with like the Middle East. I think right. Like it's like right. Sometimes. Right. Sometimes not. You never know when. So you're kind of like is is Lebanon like is is it enough in the West? I mean the Phoenicians are kind of central to the story of Greece. I know, but then they're like darker than like like the Phoenicians were actually darker than a lot of Lebanese people are now. (laughs) Yeah. Like darker than me, probably. But so Ben Shapiro is saying that uh the, the, the West rules. Right. And so like his argument is kind of like this. I mean, it can be very easily refuted, but it's kind of saying, you know, everything kind of comes from Athens and Jerusalem, and that's the West. And, like, clearly it comes from a failure in education, right? Because we learn, like, this is where it all is, right? Like, this is where everything is from. Even with religion, and I've been, like, called out on this because I, as an atheist, like, when I've criticized religion and, like, I mean, I have all three Abrahamic religions in my family, but I, that's it, right? And it's, like, been brought to my attention. Like, you know, that's not all there is with, with religion. And, like, when you criticize Abrahamic faiths versus, yeah. versus and, like, monotheistic faiths versus, yeah. like, um, like Hinduism or Buddhism, it's a completely yeah. different game. And they have their own issues, mind you, but yeah, they are they are distinct issues, yes. Yeah, they're, yeah. I mean, it, it's funny because, like, I'm, 
I definitely see the similarities among all the Abrahamic ones. And then when I learn yeah. more about the other ones, I'm kind of like, oh, this is new. It's yeah. fascinating, you know. So, so yeah, I mean, I definitely do think we can benefit. It's not even about like, you know, again, like fitting a diversity quota or whatever. It's just we can benefit intellectually. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, that's that's very valuable. So it's great that you're doing that project. Yes, it's a, it's a guerrilla effort. No, I'm just joking. My, my <laughs> department at McGill is very supportive and uh, I'm very happy about that. But, you know, they're very supportive, but, you know, other people very understandably are way too busy with the, the many things that they have to do in terms of research, teaching, and all kinds of administrative service to, you know, take time to learn a new philosophical tradition so that they could include right. that in their courses somehow. Yeah. Right? So the student demand for these things is huge, right? Undergrads want more of this stuff. They clamor for this stuff. Mm -hmm. But the kind of PhDs that are churned out by the leading places, right? The kind of PhDs that will go on to teach in universities and so on, uh, have a very narrow education and every possible incentive to focus on their narrow field if they are to remain employed right yeah so it's a it's a i don't need to tell you that structural problems need structural solutions not individual right. decisions uh, right. so it's, it's good that there are sort of scattered individuals because it's got to start somewhere uh, yeah. and you know grad yeah. students who ta for me doing these things are really happy because you know here's you know they get exposed to these things and sometimes they really like these things right so so maybe they will have had enough exposure to feel confident including that when you know, five years when they're employed somewhere. Um, yeah. But yeah, so, so there, is, there is a pressure, but the pressure is from below. And, and until that pressure comes from above or until, you know, the socially dominant departments, your Harvards and Princetons and Oxfords mm -hmm. lead the way, uh, it, it, it's, you know, it will remain isolated. But I think yeah. that a, a change is coming because, well, unfortunately, the financial pressures are on, on humanities and universities are extreme. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's very bad. One silver lining to this is perhaps we will be forced to become more attentive to what undergrads want. Right. If we can't retain undergrad interest in philosophy, there simply won't be philosophy departments. Mm -hmm. Realistically speaking, I mean, they'll always exist in your Oxfords of the world, but everywhere else, if, if undergrads you know, vote with their feet and go somewhere else, you know, who's going to let us keep existing? So right. if nothing else, maybe that will force, you know, <laughs> that will force the extremely conservative, you know, academia everywhere is very conservative, but philosophy, I don't know. I think philosophy is even more resistant to change than say history or English. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe that will force the hand of, anyway, so we'll see what happens. Right. But th there is a, there is a movement for change. There are very vocal advocates uh, for change, even among the professoriate, for now a small minority, but I think a generation from now, if we if we if we were to talk about this again in twenty years, I think we would be discussing a different situation. Right, right. I, I think like I mean, this is what what I fear about this is is I think that people are going to interpret this kind of call for expanding the canon um, as a sort of like the left is like you know right. trying canceling to be, western philosophy canceling it and like being 
politically correct and and whatever um and i think you know there's just and i think you know some there are some people who do want it for like these reasons but i i think that you know there's a very genuine desire to see what else is out there i think that's a very human desire to be like okay what is beyond this and i think it's it's really tragic that we have to make everything into like a political or cultural Or when it's kind of like, no, we just want to know what else is going on in the world. You know? I, I, I want to point out just one more thing here, which is um, the undergrad demographics is changing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I look at my classes in, in, in McGill and even more so in Dawson, um, where you have a, a sort of a broader representation of socioeconomic strata than you do in McGill, let's be honest. Um, and you see you know, you have a lot of students who are, you know, um, uh, black and Asian and so on and so forth. Uh, and some of them are, are, are sort of African-Canadian or African-American, but some of them are actually immigrants or children of immigrants from Africa and so on. And, and again, a lot and lot of students from all kinds of East Asian and South Asian countries. And if they are to remain interested in philosophy, we can't be telling them, no, 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 no. Philosophy was invented by Greek people and is now perpetrated by white people in the Northern Atlantic, right? Okay. Uh, when it's just not true. And why would you expect them to be interested if we keep telling them that, you know, this, this was created and perpetrated by, uh, perpetuated, excuse me, by people not like you at all, and we don't want to acknowledge your cultures or your civilization's contribution to philosophy, right? right? Yeah, yeah. Um, why would they not? rebel and why would they not feel excluded very reasonably right and so you know i think there is value saying yes every major civilization has contributed to philosophy undoubtedly others as well they just left no records so we can't teach what we don't have records of although there are interesting interesting projects to try to recover philosophy from oral traditions and so on i don't know too much about it but even if you only look at what big empires with the ability to write left behind you can still acknowledge that it's a global phenomenon how again with the demographics changing um, the ability to do something quite so i mean look if you're a department of german studies you only study german literature that's fine or english or french or spanish spanish language i mean Uh, but if you say you're a department of philosophy how can you it's like saying i'm a department of global literature we will only study books written in English. Right, yeah. There's an incongruity. So I, I think that the demographic pressure, in addition to the interest of students from all backgrounds and all ethnicities in expanding what's being offered to them, I think that that's going to have to change things because um, you, know, you can only resist this kind of pressure for so long. You, you're very right that it will probably create a backlash and uh, create Fox News stories about... Uh, you know, philosophy students canceling uh, Aristotle or Descartes or whatever. Right. Like, but, as if, I mean, I, I, I just think, you know, it would be so much more useful to just see it as all working together. Like, it's not like necessarily taking away from Aristotle to learn no. other philosophers. I mean, Islamic philosophers built off Aristotle as well. Yeah. So it's kind of like... what's happening now, you know, if you want to study contemporary Chinese philosophy they do combine mm-hmm. Chinese sources with Western sources. If you want to study, right? 
why, I mean, I know the answer, but why <laughs> should it not be vice versa, right? I mean, right. the answer is, of course, because, because we are still the empire and they are still the hinterlands right. you know, in terms of economic and, and military power. That's the honest answer. But, you know, we're in philosophy departments. We should not be <laughs> perpetuating these political dynamics. We should be questioning them, right? That's what we're supposed to do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, it's really funny to me seeing these academic culture wars. It kind of goes back to like what I was when we were talking about this two plus two equals four thing. It's it's yeah. very weird to me uh, to sort of have contempt for academia for questioning the way that things are, because that to me has seemed to be the purpose of academia. And I seem to see this sort of simultaneous and contradictory narratives play out where like one is saying, okay, the kids these days don't want to debate anything. They just want like one set of orthodoxy and that's that. And then the other set is like, wait, why are you debating this? Like, this is, this is just a fact. Like, this is like, what is this postmodern cultural relativism? And I'm kind of like, yeah. okay, so do you want people to debate the existing, uh, orthodoxies or do you want like a set thing in stone it's just very it's very messy uh, there's this meme where uh with the dog right where the dog brings you the ball and says you know only throw no give right it's like throw the ball but i'm not giving it to you right because you know for dogs that's that's a reasonable thing to do but (laughs) what you're describing here is exactly that right critical thinking yes but don't criticize yeah yeah exactly so i'm kind of like what do you guys want yeah it's it's very absurd to me and i mean i'm very sympathetic to criticisms of say like and i think i was saying this on twitter the other day like there are overzealous college students who yes they go very far on this identity politics thing and whatever and it's sometimes very irritating uh or they but like that's not the same as say like politicians who weaponize it, and and I think you know uh, this over there's an over fixation on universities and on like eighteen year olds who are yes kind of like playing around with this stuff they don't really know what they're yeah. doing they're figuring um, themselves out Give yeah them a break. Like, just let them do whatever like I, it was just it's so funny because like it's so funny to see like literally 18 to 24 year olds make like college news or like international news for like, yes. you know, uh, Oberlin college banned uh, Vietnamese sandwiches or whatever it was like. Seriously? Yeah. Like, okay, cool. Like, no I, one, like talk about that now. Like I just could not care. Like I'm like, for me, I, I see stuff like that. I'm like, that's very dumb. I, I really like Vietnamese sandwiches. That's a bummer. But I'm kind of like, this is not what I feel like concerning myself with. And I think it's because, you know, these students, they don't have power over me. Um, And if Ken was here, he would push back on this because he's kind of more, I think he believes more powerfully in like the the power of like rhetoric and discourse, whereas I'm more of a materialist. Um, But but I, I think that, you know, it's, I think we're placing so much emphasis on what people are saying and not about like, who with what power is saying stuff, yeah. you know? Um, but that's just like my side rant about yeah. all this. Less superstructure, more material base. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's that's the, the fancy way uh, to put it. 
but yeah, I think we're reaching time now. Yes. Um, but, uh, but yeah, thank you so much for coming on. This is a very fascinating discussion. Yeah, um, thanks for having me over. Yeah, yeah. And uh, to our listeners, thank you very much for having me.